Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, where we'll be reading a lesson from God's Word that should instruct us, all of us, in a very important area of our church's life, a crucial matter, though it is awkward in worldly um, attitudes and considerations, nevertheless a very necessary topic, and that of excommunication. I'd like to talk to you this morning about excommunication and God's tough love. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Hear now God's word. It is actually reported that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not even among the Gentiles, that one of you has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and did not rather mourn that he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, being absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already, as though I were present, judged him that hath so wrought this thing. In the name of our Lord Jesus, ye being gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, even as ye are unleavened. For our Passover also hath been sacrificed, even Christ. Wherefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in my epistle to have no company with fornicators, not at all meaning with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous and extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But as it is, I wrote unto you not to keep company if any man that is named a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such a one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do with judging them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judges. Put away the wicked man, from among yourselves. And thus far the reading of God's Word. In the late 20th century, I think the church has become something like a voluntary social club which provides spiritual entertainment to those who are interested in seeing it. A voluntary club, first of all. One where if you think that you need church, then you enter into the life of the church. And if you don't think you need it, well then of course... It's a come-and-go measure for you. And it's a social club. It exists for the sake of our own horizontal relationships, for the sake of our own horizontal projects. It's not a club which in some way is demanded vertically from above by God. And moreover, the church exists not for the sake of its unity for its wholeness and for its health as a body, but the church exists for the sake of entertaining people. And that's why we have such a spectator approach to church. That's why people think that they can miss going to worship service or miss the life of the body of Christ and nothing is going to be amiss in their lives. Because after all, you can turn on the TV, you can turn off the TV, and you can get up and go to church or you can stay home and not go to church. What's the difference? Yeah, in the late 20th century, the church has become a voluntary social club that exists to provide spiritual entertainment to those who might be interested. And you see, 
in that environment, with that outlook on the church, which is so common, so much around us, and I'm afraid so much infects our own hearts, with that attitude toward the church, the very thought of interfering in the lives of people is abhorrent. The thought of interfering in the lives of the spectators who go to church and in any way overseeing their profession of faith and in any sense overseeing their conduct the thought of trying to draw the group together in service and love and holy dedication to God, the thought of disciplining the sheep who might be wandering is just abhorrent. The thought of what we call in our circles church censures. The thought of church censures seems like something from another planet, doesn't it? How often do you talk to Christians from other congregations that have anything to say about church censures? What part of the Christian life is that? Uh, you're doing well if you talk about prayer and Bible study, right? We feel good if we find a few people who believe in social transformation, right? But how many people do you run into out in the world who call themselves Christians, who have any conception of the church as a disciplining body, that talk about censures and how they should be imposed and what their meaning is and how we should respond to them? Well, how many people do you know who go to a Christian church who have ever heard a church censure? How many of you know any other Christians who have ever heard a rebuke of a particular individual for a particular unrepentant sin from the pulpit? <laughs> like that's, you've, you've got to be from another world to believe in that sort of thing, or better, from another century. Many centuries ago, there was this tyrannical force called the Roman Catholic Church with its pope and bishops and all that. Well, they did things like that, but we don't do that. We're Protestants. We're Americans. We're 20th century Christians. And we're in a lot of trouble because we don't understand what church centers are about and we do tend to think of them as somehow really out of place, as somehow so uncomfortable that we really wish God hadn't done that and told us to engage in that sort of thing. And I hope to change your minds about that this morning. If I accomplish that, then God will have answered my prayers. We need to change our mind about church centers. You see, the late 20th century prides itself in a notion of love that I think is about as genuine as is an artificial apple that sits in the middle of your dining room table is genuine. I mean, we call what we do in the Christian church love, but it's no more nourishing and it's no more genuine, it's no more healthy than that piece of plastic that sits out there as a, uh, as a display to your guest in your home. Would you ever think of picking up that basket seriously and giving it to a guest and saying, go ahead, eat. This ought to be really good for you. See how much I love you? Have an apple, a nice plastic apple. 20th century church prides itself in a notion of love that is no better than artificial fruit, a hands-off policy of tolerance toward everyone. You see, something that has become familiar to us doesn't seem like it should be dealt with, and sin has become familiar to us in the 20th century church. We take it for granted. Indeed, I think we have a rather light-hearted attitude about it, that we must accept it as inevitable. So crass is our attitude towards sin. I've had local pastors that I run into in my teaching and, and other ministerial um, circles. I've had local pastors tell me that they have people come into their congregation um, that are not divorced in their marriage, that are going out with other people behind the back of a husband or a wife, and they'll come to church with their lover arm in arm. And they say, isn't that incredible? 
And well, of course, it is incredible morally, but in terms of the social practices of the 20th century church, I don't think it's incredible at all. It's to be expected. We don't understand how the church is to respond to sin. We keep talking about love, so-called love, and that leads us, we think, to mind our own business, to never rock the boat, to never confront anything unpleasant or do anything that might seem judgmental. And doesn't the Bible say, judge not lest you be judged? We can't possibly talk about, I mean, who's going to pick up the first stone and cast it at this person? Who's without sin? And we hear these passages. Sometimes I think they're the only passages certain people know about. They know them completely out of context. But boy, they love to run all 100 yards with that one passage in mind. Judge not, judge not, judge not. Of course, the fact in this very same passage we're not supposed to cast our pearls before swine looks like you're making a pretty desperate judgment about people and that maybe we aren't understanding it when we think that categorically means we never say anything negative about people. Hypocritical judgment, of course, is wrong. Lawless judgment is wrong. Judgment without due process is wrong, but judgment is necessary. And the Bible tells us that judgment begins at the household of God. The early church in the first century had 20th century attitudes. At least if we read uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth seems very much like a 20th century church. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, you'll see that the church in Corinth had a scandalous situation in its midst. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is fornication among you. That would have been enough for Paul's exhortation, but he adds, and such fornication as is not even among the Gentiles. He says, you're tolerating a situation which is scandalous. You are tolerating a situation that blasphemes God's name in the world. Even the Gentiles know better. You have someone who is actually going to bed with his stepmother. And what is the attitude of the Corinthians? Were they outraged Christians? Were they heart-sick and motivated to correct the situation at all costs? Were they willing to do the unpleasant work of discipline in the name of love? Absolutely not. They're just like us. They wanted to ignore the problem. They hoped that if they just looked the other way, maybe it would disappear. In fact, they prided themselves in their loving, tolerant, congenial ways. And as an aside, I need to point out something. There's a great irony in this, and I think it, it reproduces itself throughout history. We see it in our own day and age. We may even see it in our own congregation. When we decide to show a form of love that is not biblical, then it turns out that the true measure of love is not to be found among us. You see, they wanted to be so congenial toward this fornicator. They didn't want to walk the boat. They didn't want to say anything. They thought that would be divisive. Now stop and think about that. Of all the people to worry about being divisive in that way, the Corinthian Christians, the ones who said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, the Corinthian Christians who had heretics in their midst who were dividing the congregation, they were in factions, Paul had to plead with them to heal their wounds and to remember they were one body in Christ. You see, they didn't want to be divisive. And so what happened is they turned out being divisive in the wrong way. If they wouldn't be divisive based on the love of God and the standards of God, then they'd be divisive on the basis of their own subjective and prejudicial desires. And that's always the way with the church. 
A church that thinks that it's big and congenial and happy, and we don't have discipline because that would be unpleasant, has all kinds of unpleasantness. But, of course, we play a nice outward game. We have a nice cosmetic about how congenial we are. But, you see, we have divisions and we have wounds and we have festering within the congregation not being taken care of in a biblical way at all. And that was Corinth. The people in Corinth, they weren't going to be involved in discipline. They prided themselves that they were loving. And you know, Paul wasn't impressed. He wasn't impressed at all. Notice verses 2 and 6 of this chapter. Paul says, but you're puffed up. And did not rather mourn that he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. Paul says, you think you're loving? You're puffed up. You're proud. You don't know love. You should be mourning, in fact, mourning to the point, in order that, it says in the Greek, that this one would be put away from you. You should love so much. You should be so humble and so afflicted within yourselves about this sin that you would want it put away from you. Look at verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, you let this situation go unaddressed in your congregation, and it's going to leaven the entire congregation. Now, do you think Paul means by that, that the whole congregation is going to get involved in incest? I think that's pretty unlikely. That's, that's a pretty wicked sin. It's not the sort of thing people are going to very easily just fall into. You know, it's going to become a, a public spectacle, everyone running out to find a member of their family to go to bed with. That isn't what Paul means. Paul says this attitude is going to leaven the whole church, that you can sin and get away with it. It doesn't make any difference. That we're perfectly safe because we call ourselves Christians. We may have signed a decision card. We may be a member of a church. So we can sin and God's going to tolerate it. God's people tolerate it. I mean, here, look, there's an incestuous fornicator. The church doesn't say anything about that. So why should I worry if I gossip? Why should I worry if I have a hateful attitude toward my neighbor? Why should I worry if I have racial prejudice in me? Why should I worry about this, that, and the other sin when the church doesn't take a public stand to get the leaven out? And Paul says, you are proud. You don't love God. And you don't love God's people. And you don't really love the offender when you act like this. Remember Hebrews 12:8. But if you are without chastening, then you are bastards, not sons. Paul says the way you're running the church there in Corinth indicates that you're willing to be bastards. You don't want to be sons and daughters of God. You don't act like that. See, we have to understand that to be God's people has always meant to be a disciplined people. That has always been true. At the time of the Passover, when God is calling his people out of Egypt, out of the slavery that represents our sin and bondage, as he is redeeming them, as he's bringing them in the Exodus, out from that, which is a model of our redemption, at the time of the Passover, he said, you are to get the leaven out of your homes. When the Israelites were to remember the Passover, a remembrance of their salvation, their deliverance from death, and their deliverance from slavery, God required them to go a week of purging. The Feast of Unleavened Bread had to precede the Passover itself. Because, you see, to be God's people means to be a purged people. To have the leaven of malice and wickedness taken away that we might truly rejoice in the Passover lamb. As God's people, looking back upon that which is in types and shadows, a picture of the Christian church, 
we should remember too that we don't come to the Lord's Supper and we don't, we don't celebrate our sacrificial lamb. We don't come to our Passover feast without having first purged the church. The leaven must be removed or we aren't God's people. Okay, at the time of the Passover, we see that model of purging. We see also in the leadership of Moses. You think those slaves would have gone anywhere without the oversight of Moses? Well, what did Moses cry to God for? What is it that was upon Moses' heart as he tried to lead the people? Do you remember what Moses' cry was? He says, God, I need judges. I need helpers. I can't discipline these people and resolve their problems and lead them without you supplying me. Men who are filled with the Spirit can oversee their needs. And Moses, as he's about to die, prays that God will not leave Israel as sheep scattered without a shepherd. And God raises up Joshua to take the place of Moses and leading God's people in the right paths and uniting them and defending them. Move ahead in Bible history. You remember the story of Micaiah the prophet in the days of Ahab and Jehoshaphat? How Micaiah was thrown in prison because Ahab, the king in the northern empire of Israel, didn't want to hear all these negative things that Micaiah had to say. Jehoshaphat came up to see Ahab, and together they decided to go out and to take Ramoth-Gilead for the people of God. They thought Syria should have returned it. Syria hadn't. Jehoshaphat, being a godly man, says, but shouldn't we seek the will of God in this matter? And Ahab says, oh yeah, that's right, religious duty. Okay, let's get some prophets in here. And he brings in all of his false prophets. And they say, oh yes, go up to Ramoth Gilead. You're going to really wipe him out. going to be a great victory for you. Do it. Jehoshaphat says, this seems just a little too formal. I'm not so sure about this. He says, isn't there any other prophet that wants to speak? And Ahab says, oh, well, there's that Micaiah who never says anything good about me, but he's in prison. Jehoshaphat says, we'll bring Micaiah out. And Micaiah is a godly man. He's a winsome man. He knows how to handle this. He knows that he's called upon to just say whatever the king wants. And so he puts on a real open display of hypocritical prophecy. He says, oh, sure, go on up, Ahab. You're going to have a great victory. I'm positive about it. Ahab says, you're lying. You don't really believe that. He says, that's right, I don't. But what the Lord God speaks, that is what I must utter. And what he says is, I see Israel as sheep scattered without a shepherd. God's people from the very beginning needed shepherds to discipline them and to protect them and to guide them in the right paths. And Ahab, your life will be taken and Israel will be like sheep scattered without a shepherd. Move ahead to the prophecy of Zechariah, where Zechariah's heart is broken when God reveals to him the sheep will someday be scattered because the shepherd will be slain. Move ahead to the days of Jesus in his earthly ministry. As he looks upon Israel, the Bible says he saw them as sheep scattered without a shepherd, knowing that when the sheep themselves would plead for his crucifixion, when the shepherd would be slain, God would cast off Israel forever, and they would be sheep that now would go astray, and God would say, so be it. Since you wouldn't have my way, have your way. But it shouldn't surprise you that if God's people have always been a disciplined people in this way, that even though Jesus sees Israel going its way and being scattered without the shepherd, that after Jesus rose from the dead, he restores Peter. And what does he say to Peter? Three times he says this to Peter. This is the burden of Jesus' message to Peter. He says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep. They need that. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, understanding very well that message of Jesus 
then gives this exhortation to those who would rule in the church. The elders therefore among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, who am also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Tend the flock of God which is among you, exercising the oversight, not of constraint, but willingly, according to the will of God. Peter says, it is necessary that God's people be disciplined. They are sheep in need of a shepherd. It breaks the heart of God and God's leaders when the sheep are scattered without a shepherd to take care of them. Jesus, in the Great Commission, indicates how crucial church discipline is, it seems to me, when he calls those who will follow him disciples. He says, uh, go and make disciples of all the nations. A disciple is one who willingly places himself under the discipline of a master. Jesus says, go find those who want to be disciplined, who will put themselves under the master. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the church, the great master of the church, has appointed a government in his church by means of overseers who are to rule the household of God, and they are to rule it in session with the Lord. In Matthew 18, verse 20, where Jesus speaks of the church disciplining people, he says, Lo, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You know, most people cite that as some kind of a, a blessing that Jesus is with us in our church services, or Jesus is with us in our Bible studies, and in our prayer gatherings, and and I don't deny that there's a general appropriateness to that, but that verse doesn't specifically talk about all those pleasant things. It's a verse about discipline. Jesus says, and when you discipline the church, I'm there in the midst of you. Because when you draw judgment against offenders in my body, you do so in session with me. According to the summary teaching of our Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 30, the officers of the church have been committed, uh, have had committed to them by Christ the keys of the kingdom of heaven by virtue of which they have authority to retain and remit sins, to shut the kingdom against the impenitent both by the word of God and by church censures. And that's based on Matthew, the 16th chapter, verse 19, where Jesus says to Peter, who is the spokesman for all the apostles, the faithful apostles, Jesus says, and I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and those sins that you remit shall be, have been remitted in heaven, and those which you retain shall have been retained in heaven. You know, in reacting against the Roman Catholic abuse of that passage, I'm afraid most Protestants have fallen into uh, neglecting it altogether. Since we don't like the Roman Catholic version of discipline, then we don't believe in discipline at all. Well, we come to the New Testament then. If we understand that God's people have always been and must of necessity be a disciplined people, then how are the people of God disciplined in the New Testament? The Bible sets out, for convenience, I'm going to mention three levels of censure, it seems to me. The first is the level of admonition and rebuke. Admonition and rebuke. When we confront an offender with his sin warning him of its consequences and exhorting him to repentance and to greater fidelity in following Christ. Now this is what the Bible tells us we must do if we are leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5, at the 12th verse, Paul says, But we beseech you, brothers, to know then that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them exceedingly highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. 
Do you think this is just fruit salad? Is that the way Paul's writing? He just throws in a little bit of this and a little bit of that and just mixes it together? No, you see there's a flow to this. He says, acknowledge your leaders. Love them for the work they do, the work of admonishing you. And he says, and be at peace among yourselves. You see, there's not going to be a church that has peace and has righteousness and that deserves to be called a church of God that follows the Prince of Peace that is not a disciplined church. So we must admonish. And look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. In the same general category of admonition and rebuke, Paul says, Them that sin reprove in the sight of all that the rest also may be in fear. It is necessary then at some point when a Christian who sins against God will not be corrected and will not repent, it's necessary to admonish and to rebuke that person publicly. But what happens when that person doesn't respond? Or what happens when the nature of the offense is so aggravated that it's already beyond admonition by the time you judge it? Well, the Bible speaks, secondly, of a level of discipline called suspension, which means withdrawing social fellowship from someone and suspending them from the Lord's Supper precisely in order that they may be ashamed and come to their spiritual senses. 2 Thessalonians 3. Again, we see the necessity of discipline. 2 Thessalonians 3. Look at verse 6 and then verses 14 and 15. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which uh, they have received of us. This is a command in the name of the Lord that you do this. Verse 14, And if any man obeys not our word by this epistle, note that man that you have no company with him to the end that he may be ashamed. And yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. At this point, he has not been put outside. He's still considered an insider. He's still considered a brother. But you admonish him and you shame him by shunning him publicly and not allowing him to come to the Lord's Supper. But if, even after that, with all of our admonitions and all of our prayers and even with the shameful situation of being suspended, if an offender has not shown repentance, then there's no option left to the church but to proceed to the highest form of censure, to proceed to excommunication, which our Book of Discipline calls a solemn declaration by an ecclesiastical judicatory that the offender is no longer considered a member of the body of Christ. Excommunication is a sentence that originates in and is approved by, supported by, authorized by, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew, the 18th chapter, which I'd like you to turn to, you may want to keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 5, but in Matthew 18, Jesus tells us at verse 17, And if he refuse to hear them, tell it unto the church. And if he refuse to hear the church also, let him be unto thee as the Gentile and the publican. Excommunication is required by Jesus. When someone will not hear the church, he says you must consider him a heathen. You must see him as outside of the body of Christ. And so our book of discipline says that excommunication is the most severe form of censure and is resorted to only in cases of offenses aggravated by persistent impenitence. 
think one of the biggest misunderstandings of excommunication that we've ever seen in the history of the church, and one which I think probably lies in the background of so much misconstrual of it in the 20th century Protestant church. The biggest problem we have is in thinking that, well, excommunication means certain people think you're so sinful that you just can't come to church anymore. Oh, no. There's no sin that can't be forgiven if someone's repentant. Excommunication takes place not because of the nature of your sin, but because of the nature of your incorrigibility. You see, someone may even engage in incestuous fornication and can be restored to the Church of Christ. You might like to know that in 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaks of this one who is being excommunicated as being restored to the body of Christ. Excommunication is supposed to work that kind of restoration and make it possible. Excommunication doesn't mean that someone cannot be saved, cannot ever be brought back. What it means is they don't want to be saved, they do not want to be restored, they do not want to repent at this particular point. And so we must, because of their impenitence, put them outside. You see, there are many sins that can originate the process of church discipline. Indeed, any sin could. Your gossip, your telling lies behind somebody's back might begin the process, but in the end, it's only one thing that leads to excommunication. All these other little sins, or big sins, can start the process, but when the process is over, the only thing, the only thing that makes a person excommunicated is that they refuse to be corrected. Yes, you may fall into sin, and the shepherds may come and say, you can't do this, you must change, you must repent, and if you repent, then you're not under discipline. You're like the rest of us, a sinner saved by grace. But when you say, no, I won't repent, and no, I won't listen to you, and after all, I don't wish to have your authority over me, when you get to the point of being impenitent and will not hear the church, Jesus says, you must be deemed a heathen then. And so it's only incorrigibility. It's only refusing to hear the church that leads to a person's excommunication. You see, all of you, when you publicly profess faith in Jesus Christ, when you were joined to the church, you vowed, in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life, to heed the church's discipline. And now when a person refuses to do that and acts in an uncorrectable manner, then that person becomes a covenant breaker, one who lives in defiance of God's explicit commandments. You know, the book of Hebrews was written to those who were tempted with apostasy. And the author of that book wrote this warning in chapter 13, verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit, for they watch in behalf of your souls. And so what are we to make then of someone who's... And what are we to make of someone's spiritual condition when he or she refuses to honor that God-given command to submit for the sake of their souls? You see, this isn't a question we can answer by subjective emotion. This isn't something we can answer by unreliable popularity polls. We can't look at opinions of people or fallible human traditions. Only Scripture can interpret the facts as God would have us see the facts. And with God's unerring truth before us, we must concur that when someone refuses to hear the church and will not repent, then they must be put out. As Jesus says, and if he refuses to hear the church, let him, to be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a publican. Those who break covenant with God, those who despise the discipline of the church must finally be seen for what they truly are, rebels, unbelieving rebels, 
who stand under the wrath and the curse of God. And so if we come back to our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 5, and notice what Paul said the church must do about this fornicator who is unrepentant. 1 Corinthians 5.13 describes it this way. He must be put outside the people of God. Put away the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul says, I'm surprised that you didn't mourn to such a point that you wanted him put out. If you really loved him, if you really loved the Lord Jesus Christ, if you really loved the ways of righteousness, you would be so heartbroken you would want him excommunicated. You see, we're not used to thinking that way. We're the opposite. We think, if I'm heartbroken, I don't want him excommunicated. Paul says, no, if you really care, if you really truly mourn in a righteous way, you want him put out. And Paul says, therefore, I, in the power of the Lord Jesus and with my spirit, I direct you to do it. Put the man aside. Don't let him be a member of your body. Another way he describes this is in verse 5. He says, for the destruction, excuse me, deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The theological geography that you find in the Bible goes like this. There are basically two places to dwell, within the covenantal people of God and in the world. And within the covenantal people of God, the Lord Jesus Christ is the King. He's the ruler, and He's the Savior of men. And outside in the world, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. That's his domain. And in the world, there is no hope. In the world, there is no salvation. In the world, there is just the darkness of sin and despair and finally death. And so Paul says, what you must do with a person who will not repent is you must take them outside of the kingdom of light and graciousness and love and deliver him to Satan. Put him in the world. And there in the world, hopefully, his sinful nature will be destroyed as he remembers what it was like to know salvation, to know the grace of God, to know the love of God's people. But now outside, he sees the misery and the despair that confronts him. And hopefully, in the day of the Lord Jesus, his soul then will be saved. Deliver him to Satan. That's a strange way of thinking for us. We tend to think delivering someone to Satan is so that they will finally be destroyed. But Paul thinks of it, although that's a possibility, he thinks of it as a way of provoking them to come back. Deliver him to Satan that his soul may be saved in the final day. And then one more way Paul speaks of this in verse 7. He says, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump even as you are unleavened. Paul says, the body of Christ must be purged. I referred to that already. At the Passover, remember, they had to have seven days of unleavened bread. The leaven had to be removed if they were to enjoy the true Passover God intended for them. Paul says, how can you take the Lord's Supper and have such a one in your midst? Purge the leaven out. So don't misunderstand the meaning of excommunication and don't think it can be taken lightly. It has deadly, it has eternal consequences. No matter what the offender for the present time wishes to believe or not, the internal thoughts and the rationalizations of those who are excommunicated will not change the objective truth that Christ stands in the midst of his court Christ, in session with his elders, binds and looses sins and places people outside in the domain of Satan and purges his body through excommunication. Matthew 18, 18 reminds us that whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And that's because the church, when it disciplines someone, does it in session with Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, ye being gathered together, and my spirit, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan. Jesus says, I'm doing this. You're only my instrument. It's with my authorization that you engage in an excommunication. So consider what that means. To be justly excommunicated by the church of Jesus Christ is to face the eternal wrath of God because of your unrepentant heart. To be excommunicated is to be marked out for eternal condemnation. It is, in a sense, to be publicly apprised that you will be sent to hell forever by God. And you see, that's not a matter of interpersonal squabble and debate. So many people think, oh, people couldn't get along, and those who had the upper hand excommunicated. Oh, no, it's not. It's the Lord Jesus who excommunicates, and that justly by the procedures of his word. This isn't simply a matter of leaving a social club. This is a matter of being judicially placed under doom by Christ himself through his session. And all the rationalizations in the world will not save you in the face of Christ's condemnation. And it's his condemnation that the government of the church pronounces. And so you see, if you are excommunicated, in a sense you don't need to worry or wonder anymore what the verdict of God will be on the final day. On that great and final day of judgment, the church has already warned you of where you're going to be. Think of it this way. At the high school where I teach, I give two exams every time I examine people. I call one a qualifying exam, the other the regular exam. And the reason I do that is because I have found so often, especially with the heavy material that I teach, that students will think they really are okay, they really do know it, and they're going to do just fine, and then, boy, they just fall on their faces. And so what I do is I have kind of a preliminary exam by which they're to qualify to take the real one. And in that preliminary exam, they get a real idea of where they're going to stand on the final day of examination. Oh, that's a real low-level and limited analogy. But in a sense, that's what excommunication is all about. When the church excommunicates somebody, the church is saying, don't think on the final day you're going to be all right. This is a preview of what God's going to tell you on the final day. So if you think, oh, it's okay, I can live this way, nothing's going wrong, the church stands in the way and says, wait a minute, it's not going to go well for you. God says you are under his wrath and curse. Turn. And if you don't, of course, you will, of course, go to condemnation. But if you hear the rebuke of the church, then your soul will be saved in the final day. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And God loves us enough to put someone in our way and to say, stop. You're wrong. You're fooling yourself if you think God will accept you as you are now. And so how should we? In light of the word of God, how should we respond and act toward a person who's been excommunicated? We're all going to need to know that this morning. How should we act? Well, first, I would exhort you as God's people not to minimize and not to play down or subordinate or somehow conveniently ignore the serious character of what I've just told you. Don't ever think this can be put aside and you can just say, okay, we can just kind of pretend like it didn't happen. No, it's a very serious thing. But secondly, on the other hand, this is not the same situation as a suspension. This is not the same situation as a shunning. For now, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13, now the person is on the outside. And Paul says, what do I have to do with judging them that are without? Does not God judge those who are outside? You only shun someone who is still considered a member of the church of Jesus Christ. But when they've been excommunicated, shunning is no longer appropriate. And so shunning ends. It's no longer like you can't have social fellowship with that person because now they're on the outside. 
But you see, wouldn't it be a dreadful mistake to say, oh, good, that means the pressure's off. Oh, no. That means the person is walking right into the buzzsaw now. What you're saying is, okay, we've tried to stand in the way, but now you insist on your damnation and your condemnation. Now we, don't, now we don't shun you socially as though you're a member of the church and we must put you to shame. Now we say you've been put to shame. And the only hope we have is the same as we do toward the heathen, toward the publicans and sinners, that in some way our contact with you might bring you to conversion. See, things are not restored to normal as though nothing has happened. Now all of our social contact must be with a sense of spiritual alienation, with a sense of the danger that person is in. And all of our social contact must now be for the purpose of evangelizing and seeking the conversion of the excommunicated member. But I need to add one more thing here. The social contact and the priority of evangelistic concern are not precisely the same as what we have with simple unbelievers, if I can put it that way. You see, you may have a next-door neighbor that's an unbeliever, has never been a member of a church, has never professed to follow Jesus Christ, and you keep working on that. You may have your neighbor over for a barbecue from time to time. You may uh, exchange gifts at Christmas. I don't know, but you have social contact, and you know if you're a true Christian that you should do that for the sake of their conversion. You should be interested in their eternal salvation. But you see, an excommunicated member of the church is not in the same category with your unbelieving next-door neighbor. The excommunicated party is a covenant-breaker who has not simply refused to believe God and profess his name, but has now despised God and shown hostility to your Savior and openly violated the terms of the covenant and chosen a self-willed lifestyle. And James 4, verse 4, reminds us that friendship with the world is hostility to God. We cannot see this person in the same friendly light, even as a garden-variety unbeliever, if I can put it that way. David prayed this way in Psalm 139, Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloodthirsty men. Do not I hate them, O Jehovah, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. They are become my enemies. Now, in a Christian setting, we are to love our enemies. We're to love them for the sake of Jesus Christ and to seek their salvation. But you must remember that those who have become enemies of God are not treated simply as your garden variety unbeliever. You've got to... Um, well, a, a, a member of our augmented session suggested this to me at some point in the recent past, and I thought it was helpful. He said, we must find the excommunicated party detestable, even as we seek their conversion, keeping in mind the insult that they have directed at the Savior. The analogy was put that if you had a next-door neighbor who had never been a Christian but has come to the point of vilifying the name of God and openly despising the gospel and telling you, I don't want to hear what you have to say anymore, then, of course, you might still continue to evangelize them. and You might even have them over for a barbecue, but it's going to be a very awkward situation because now you don't have somebody who's just an open target for evangelism. You have someone who says, I despise what you say. I don't want to hear it. And so let's remember that an excommunicated party may not be shunned anymore, may be someone who should be um, evangelized, whose conversion we should seek, and yet we've got to remember the history and the background and the dreadful seriousness of that person's situation. 
One other thing I need to say about what we should do in acting toward excommunicated parties, and that's that the session would recommend today, as we pronounce an excommunication, and I think it's appropriate any time that discipline takes place, that we might all engage in a time of prayer and fasting. If we really mourn and, and grieve our souls for these people, then let's fast before God and direct our prayers with intensity that he will use this discipline as tough love. You see, that's the purpose of a church censure, God's tough love. The Westminster Confession tells us in chapter 30 that the reason for church censures, it says they are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offenders, for the deterring others from similar offenses, for purging out that leaven which might infect the whole body, for vindicating the honor of Christ as well as the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God from justly falling on the church which allows his covenant to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. First of all, the major reason for church discipline, church discipline is for the sake of the incorrigible sinner that he might be restored to the grace of God and the fellowship of Christ's people. That may seem very strange to us that this heavy, negative judgment of excommunication against the person is really for his ultimate good. It is pronounced in the hope that it will turn him away from the path of destruction. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, that we turn this person over to Satan, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Excommunication is tough love. It's not artificial love. It's tough love. Does a father love his son if he says, well, I've told you not to run in the street, but if you choose to, go ahead. Now, tough love is willing to see the tears of the child when you spank the child and discipline the child for his own good, for his own ultimate safety and salvation. And so the church, looking upon its members, must love them in tough love, not sentimentality, not the artificial fruit you put out on the table, but the real thing. Think of it, if you will, as therapeutic medicine. Therapeutic medicine, the fact that it is going to heal the body doesn't mean it always tastes good and that it's fun but it is therapeutic. The second reason for church discipline, according to our confession, is for the sake of deterring others from falling into similar offenses. As I said earlier, Paul says, if you let this leaven run rampant, the whole lump is going to be leavened. You're all going to have the attitude you can be careless in your lives and in your profession of Christian faith. The whole body will be infected by this way of thinking. Remember 1 Timothy 5.20, that the rebuke is given, that others also may fear. And so you see again that excommunication is tough love now, not simply toward the offender, but toward his Christian brothers. It's like prophylactic medicine for us. As we see in excommunication, we say, boy, we better take this seriously. We'd better not be lighthearted about our sins. We'd better not be unrepentant and incorrigible. And thirdly, church discipline vindicates the glory of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. Doesn't it ever break your heart, brother? Doesn't it ever break your heart, sister, when you hear people say, oh yeah, those Christians say this, but look at the way they live. I have said this many times as I've taught apologetics, and I haven't changed my mind yet. That is the toughest apologetical problem to deal with. Oh, there are a lot of tough problems out there. The problem of evil, and the problem of false religions, and miracles, and all that. But the toughest problem of all is when somebody says, well, you may have all this truth. Why does it make any difference to anybody? 
You, these people call themselves Christians. Look at the way they live. What's going on here? Big deal. There's no difference between them and the world. And for the glory of God and the holy profession of the gospel, we must discipline our members. And we must say to the world, we take this seriously. What do you think of parents when you see unruly children? Do you think well of them? What do you expect the world's going to think of our Heavenly Father if we let people go around as unruly children claiming His name? The tough job of church discipline is engaged, therefore, to show true love to the Lord, that His name might genuinely be hallowed among men. And finally, according to the confession, the covenant people of God who refuse to take seriously the standards of the Lord and refuse to discipline themselves in terms of those standards will see his covenant promises turn into covenant curses against them. That's the nature of the covenant. You despise it, and the covenant will not be to your blessing. It will be to your curse. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, Paul says, this is what's happening to the Corinthian church. He says, Whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment unto himself if he doesn't discern the body. For this cause many among you are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep. But if we discerned ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait one for another. If any man is hungry, let him eat at home. That your coming together be not unto judgment. And a church that takes the Lord's Supper and does not discipline its members is drawing people together every time they take the sacrament for judgment. Because God is a covenant-keeping God, and He's laid down gracious and wonderful, marvelous promises in His covenant. But when we despise His covenant and will not discipline ourselves, He says, and you come together for judgment. So our confession, as I think in most every case, is so eminently biblical. Why are church centers necessary? To show tough love to offenders. Why are church centers necessary? To show tough love to the church. Why are church centers necessary? To show tough love for Christ and His glory. And why are church centers necessary? To show tough love for the salvation of God's people on earth, that His wrath not break out against them. God's love, my friends, is not artificial sentiment. God's love is a tough love, a real love, a restoring love. And so must the churches be. Let's pray. Father, we need so badly to have our minds changed and our attitudes reformed because we live in the midst of a people who don't take seriously your covenant and who do a lot of mouth service about your glory but don't really want to get down to glorifying you. We live in the midst of a people who can speak a great deal about love, but it's all artificial because it doesn't emulate your love and doesn't live by your standards. And so, God, save us today from our incorrect notions. Save us from our worldly emotions. Take away our pride and our being puffed up that we know better than you. And teach us by this exposition of your word the true meaning of love within the body of Christ, the tough love that we need to have for offenders and for each other and for you. Help us, Father, to change our attitudes and to reform our ways. And we ask in some way that you might bless us as weak 
and as inconsistent as we are as your people, that you might bless us in terms of that covenant that you have imposed. That as we try, even in our faltering way, to live up to it and to its disciplining measures, that you would give us joy in the midst of sorrow, that you would strengthen our hearts even as we mourn, and that you'd give us the assurances of your promise to be with us to the end of this age, to bless us and strengthen us and give us victory in your name because we've been willing to pay the price and do as you say. Give us truly a tough love sanctioned by your word. For we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.